Let us pray. <clears throat> Come, Holy Spirit, and be our guest, and let my words be your words, and all to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Well, before I dig in, I've got to say this is my probably my last message as a deacon because I'm to be ordained to the priesthood, as you all know, next Saturday. God willing. And Bishop Harvey arriving <laughs> from Canada. So we look... <laughs> We're off to a good start. <laughs> but this is uh, singularly exciting, to be sure. Well, we've come to the fourth Sunday after the Epiphany. I will not comment on the speed with which time flies, but when I was preparing this, I thought of that. As you get older, it just flies. It just goes on and on very quickly. I don't know about you, but I'm very thankful, and this isn't to Brown Knows the Archdeacon, because he knows I don't do that. But I'm very thankful for the previous... <laughs> Be quiet up there. I'm very thankful for the previous three Sunday sermons that he has given to us, because they've given me a little more insight, perhaps, uh, for the appreciation, I, I should say, for the message of Epiphany. Frankly, in the past, this is not a church season about which I have studied or thought too much. To refresh your memories, we understand that Epiphany is all about Jesus being manifest. And what do we mean here? We mean that by certain events and certain actions that we identify with this season, we should be left with little doubt of just who Jesus is. Jesus is God incarnate and had powers way beyond human ability, let alone human comprehension. But as we consider this fact, we realize again that Jesus is man as well. True God and true man. You've heard that many times. With the coming of the three seers, the wise men, and all the symbolism so well demonstrated, we see clearly that Jesus is a king, or rather king above all kings. And we see that with the gift of incense, that he is God. For we honor God with incense and have throughout the Old Testament. And we're also made aware of the fact that he was born to die by the symbolism provided by the gift of myrrh. This was anticipatory of embalming after his death. But most importantly, we must also note that these three kings were pagans. And their coming to see and honor Jesus ushered in a dramatic change in sacred history. Where now, salvation begins to become available to all. Not just the people Israel. With Jesus becoming incarnate, even pagans or Gentiles had access to the salvation of the one God. Then we saw the miracle at the wedding feast of Cana, when Jesus, challenged by a secular event, was able to transform water into wine, miraculously. This event interestingly recorded only in John's Gospel, is said to have been the first miracle performed by our Lord. And so this is an introduction to what was to come 
when Jesus evolved into his role clearly and brought healing of body and soul to so many. And we do know this is the first of such events because we sense a certain hesitation on the part of Jesus with his telling his mother that it is not yet his time. But Mary, seemingly prescient, pushes her son, saying, do what he tells you. I'm certain she had a wry smile on her face when she said that. And this seems to gently goad Jesus to do what he will do so well. He changes water into wine miraculously. And good wine at that. Again, he is manifest. Shown to be who he really is. Man, by going to a wedding with his mother and friends, but God, by what he is able to do in that setting. Well, I hope this look back has given you some food for thought and that it may allow your being able to answer convincingly, like the Apostle Peter, just who Jesus is. In morning prayer just uh, an hour ago, whenever it was, half an hour ago, uh, we read that section where in uh, chapter 16 of Matthew's Gospel, where at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked Peter whom he thought Jesus was. And Peter responded, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right answer, Peter. Now, let's look briefly at the first part of today's Gospel reading. In a sense, to me, the passage echoes much of what we've heard above, and as such, fits right into the Epiphany message. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us! We're going to drown! Or in another translation, we are perishing. Jesus replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up, he rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Note again, Jesus demonstrated both human and divine characteristics. He's in the stern of the boat with apostles who were fishermen, some of them anyway, and he was asleep. Somehow, I don't think that God sleeps. And so this is a very human Jesus. He was tired and needed rest. But then, out of the blue, a severe storm came up. And interestingly, on the Sea of Galilee, I'm told that this was not an uncommon occurrence or phenomenon. The topography is such that there are ravines all around with rivers which drain into the sea. And the consequence of winds coming through those ravines they come at cross currents. They hit each other and stir up the water rather dramatically. And this can be a sudden phenomenon. I was, I was preparing this. I was thinking about, well, my wife and I and my mother, I think, used to call Breezy Corner in Boston, where between the, uh, the skyscrapers, we don't have many skyscrapers, but the tall buildings, we'd have wind coming in and blow you right off the sidewalk. It kind of reminded me of that. Anyway, this violent storm came up suddenly while Jesus was asleep. And it was so severe 
that the disciples with him feared for their lives, saying to him, we are perishing. Our Lord, awakened from sleep, demonstrates then his divine nature by speaking to the storm, stilling it, and saving the day. Now, some critics have said that Jesus was lucky that there was a storm that waxed and waned at just the right time for him to be able to show his powers. The suggestion, of course, being that he had no special powers. I don't think this is worthy of comment. Let's not ever try to reduce the divinity of the incarnate Lord. Before I comment on the importance of this, this story to us today, I'd like to mention the story's context. I know I've said from here and other places I've preached that one of my seminary professors always said, context is king. This was my, one of my favorites, Erica Moore. And her thinking here was that one cannot take a snippet of scripture and then expect to understand it, or even worse, to use it to demonstrate something. And people do do that, as you know. The context helps one understand exactly what God wanted the reader to understand from the particular message. So let's look at the bookends of this passage. Immediately proceeding, we see Jesus telling some folks whom he was addressing that there was indeed a cost associated with following him. Jesus comments that foxes have holes and birds have nests. That's rather comely, I love that. But that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And after pointing this out, one wannabe says, Lord, let me go and bury my father, and then when that's all settled, I'll follow you and become part of the team. It's the old, sure, I'll go with you and be part of the group, but not yet. This has been described as a hard saying of Jesus, where the Lord appears to be rather callous and uncaring about someone who's lost his father, who wants to care for the most basic yet important matter of seeing to his father's body and is told that's not important. But I don't think that this is what this is all about at all. I believe that burying his father here is a euphemism for his saying that I've got lots to do. I've got a life to live. I want to live my whole life, have some fun, and when I'm done with that, then I'll fit you into my schedule. You know, isn't that a lot like a lot of us? We put off the most important things like taking care of where we're going to spend eternity. But this is really a lead-in, the first bookend for the storm story, isn't it? Jesus' actions in, as I said, saving the day, let us know, if we haven't figured it out yet, that he is indeed God incarnate. And that we had better get our priorities straightened out. He gives us many chances to get it right, but time is short. And you know what? We're dead a long time. Jesus is saying, come to him now. The other bookend is the second part of the gospel message, read earlier, where Jesus, again, miraculously delivers men who were possessed. It seems clear that this is another emphasis on the, on the powers of our Lord for any who may be having a difficult time in understanding that times have 
changed. Something new is on the scene. And interestingly, those most affected by this, those who lose their pigs as the pigs into which the demons have been delivered, are more concerned about the pigs than they are about the men who are delivered. Priorities, again. We must be far more concerned about one man than many hogs. Well, now let's look briefly at what the gospel passage means to us. <clears throat> Importantly, this is that well-known gospel in a, a passage in all three synoptic gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke. Remember what the fishermen said when the storm threatened? They yelled, we're perishing. This story for us should be much more than a story about Jesus stilling a storm. Indeed, that was miraculous, and we must wonder at it. But clearly, there's a gigantic metaphor here. We really are perishing. Need examples? Just look at the number of folks that are unemployed or underemployed. And even worse, those folks that have given up, look, given up looking for work. And there's a, an economy in the world now that no one seems to understand. And no one knows exactly what to do about it. Need I say more? Look at recent headlines, and I promise I will not wander into politics. Andrew's smiling back there. Except to note that we have a presidential candidate who debated with himself and his aggrieved wife whether he should continue with an adulterous affair or pursue an open marriage. What? <laughs> should he continue to cheat on his wife? Whatever happened? to the clear scriptural message that marriage is between one man and one woman, and that's it. You know, scripture gives us all we need to know when it comes to morals and ethics. Anything outside scriptural guidelines is a matter of conjecture. Thank you, John Stott, for that. So we are perishing, just like the passengers on the boat. And what should we do about it? Well, there's nothing new about my recommendation. Jesus is ready, willing, and able to calm any storm with which we might be faced. All we have to do is come to him, confess our sins, and start over. Jesus will calm any storm that we may present to him. But we need to admit our need, cry out to him as Lord, and plead with him, to save us. Our prayers are quite sufficient to wake him up. And they must be expectant prayers. We've heard that frequently lately, and I remind you of all that. Pray expectantly. Let's remember that wherever Jesus is, the storms of life become a calm. Let me repeat that. Wherever Jesus is, the storms of life become a calm. Let's recall John 16:33, wonderful, wonderful passage. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome 
the world. And so I would suggest to you as we meander through the season of Epiphany that you decide absolutely that you know that Jesus is exactly who he says he is and then respond to that realization by calling him into your life and praying like crazy for help with the inevitable storms. Remember, in Matthew 11.30, Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.